The Descent. Hey, everybody. Mark D., IT guy, dad, and generally extreme movie nerd. And I'm continuing the scary movie vibe because I'm kind of feeling it. Not really my normal thing, so it's a bit novel. And this movie came from a physical movie dump I got from a friend who was divesting themselves of the very specific things that didn't 100% spark them joy. It's not that they didn't like this movie, it's that this isn't a movie that they were going to revisit, but they had a really cool Blu-ray, and I got it. Alright! And it is the British horror movie called The Descent from 2005, not to be confused with Descent, the vomit-inducing 1995 zero-G shooter released by Interplay, and it's fucking awesome. Written and directed by Neil Marshall, it's definitely a case of a fully realized vision end-to-end, which I'm finding is definitely a thing that I tend to go for, as there is perhaps a bit less of the feel of design by committee, even though there are always, always compromises made in the process of making a feature film. This easily could have ended up as a modern-day Gleaming the Cube or Airborne, however, it stayed the course to be a righteous scare plotted out with thought and deliberation. By the numbers. The Descent was made on a 3.5 million pound budget and premiered July 8th, 2005 in the UK. The movie was shown at Sundance in 2006 and had a wide US release August 4th, 2006. Box was nearly $57.1 million, which is a, a success, clearly. Clearly a success. Plot synopsis. This is going to be somewhat disingenuous because there's there's a lot more to the movie but I'll, I'll do it anyway because why not this is a spoiler light right but know that after this there are spoilers abound and I, I do think that spoilers will change your experience of the movie even if you're the type of person that doesn't mind spoilers I strongly feel that the movie was very deliberately crafted to have the progression that it does so again Super spoilers ahead that will change absolutely and just 100% change your experience watching this movie. Okay, cool. So, the summary is six chicks with picks get stuck in a cave. Yeah, that's it. That's the summary. That That's what it is. You know, and, and this is, see, this is a trick. This is to make sure that the people who skipped the first spoiler warning really got it and, and they get the fuck out of here and they go watch the movie, which is like on Amazon right now, I think. So anyway, so there's there's a friend group of of six British women and they're they're getting together in the US a year after one of their members experienced you know the loss of her husband and her daughter. They go off into a cave that's the most the most extreme cave and it turns out that it's it's an uncharted cave and Nathan Drake is not there and no one knows that they're there. And hey, you know, if that wasn't enough there's a whole community of prehistoric golem ass humans in there that evolved to live in the dark and they're they're going to try to eat everybody. Like a bunch of fucking chuds. It's, you know, it's like posting on, on the internet as a woman. You know, fun. Characterization of the characters. So the movie is a relatively simple machine that has three moving parts, and they are characters, cave, and crawlers. That's it, really. It's a very stripped-down and movie, and, and kind of on a 3.5 million pound budget, that makes a lot of sense. But it also allows for a, a real clarity of storytelling the cast sheet right is as follows sarah 
the blonde widower who is still processing her trauma. Beth, the nurturing, dutiful, and true friend of Sarah. Juno, the extreme sports girl who is the selfish friend. Rebecca, the tall one who seems to be the most level-headed and reasonable. Sam, the young one. She's going to be a doctor or, or something. Holly, another extreme friend of Juno's who's new to the group. She seems to live in the U.S. because she ran out of things to jump off of in Galway, according to her. She looks a lot more punk than the rest of them. And I'll say this as a, as a blanket statement that these women are all attractive. Neil Marshall, the writer-director, can't help but bro down in some of the interviews and behind the scenes and commentary. And these women are definitely viewed through a lens of sexuality, but I don't think it's quite as male as one would think. They are successful and powerful in their own right and are really mastering their fates in being both bodacious and badass. And that's just how that cookie crumbles. It's not Catherine Zeta-Jones entrapment level of visual exploitation, but there's still a degree of it. The actress that plays Juno, Natalie Mendoza, is definitely the example of that almost overly sexualized woman. But that's also her character in many ways. She's dressed in red. She's the only one like wearing like a real color. And she's the most extreme, but also the most obviously physical. And all that blends together to make for impressive female characters that I would like to think cross the gender boundaries. That They aren't just aimed at being exciting for one part of the audience, but the audience as a whole. You know, and to get into heavy, have it's get into things, right? Just jumping ahead, it's heavily implied that Juno and Sarah's husband were having an affair. So yes, we do have this overtly sexual and selfish and impulsive aspect to Juno right off the bat. So really, all of that lines up. There really isn't too much more to the characters than that, and even still, it it gets it it takes something like twenty minutes to get into the cave. That being said, the setup of the affair, the car accident, the visions that Sarah is having, and some minor character things like Rebecca being responsible, counterpart to Juno, especially in the extended cabin scene where they talk more in depth about how they had started a company to guide extreme sports tours. Um, it, it, it all comes into play without being obnoxious. It's a fine line, but I think that the movie ended up just on the right side of it. Scare analysis. Jump scares. So I calculated exactly 14.7 jump scares on average in this movie. That's pretty average for a horror movie. And it's also a made-up number. I'm not to the point where I'm going to count jump scares. I don't think that that's my, the podcast that I'm in, but I'm also not not at that point. So I could. You don't know. Just keeping you on your toes. I didn't do it this time, but the, the movie does use jump scares a couple of times. Initially, they are fake or unearned in that they're a scare for the audience, but not an actual scare in the the universe of the movie, the fiction. But they become earned very soon. And I, I think that it's just shadow games that the movie plays with the audience, which I can appreciate because their, their pacing is effective. Claustrophobia. Psychologists, at least on Wikipedia seem to make the big call and categorize the fear of small spaces as an irrational fear. 
I didn't really used to be claustrophobic, but this seems to have changed over time. And they call out the MRI machine specifically. And I've had several MRIs in my life, but it had been some time. And the last time I went in for my shoulder, which was, you know, probably about a year ago, I was, I was much larger than the last time that I'd been in one of the machines going in head first. The technician's like, are you okay? And I'm just like, yeah, totally. You know, I'm good playing it super cool. And I, I, I took a deep breath and my stomach touched the top of the machine and it was basically an instant panic attack. I've definitely had a few experiences where I felt trapped and basically had a fight or flight response, but it's mostly when I'm constrained in some way and, and just like being shoved into a tube, like a fucking human torpedo with no space up or down or to either side and with no view to the outside world. That was, that was rough. Watching this movie was rough too. There really was a genius in how they built these sets. And did I mention that they were never at any point in a real cave? Because it's true. They obviously filmed some stuff on location in Scotland, but outside of that and some medium janky compositing in front of miniatures and what have you, it was all sets at Pinewood Studios in London, which is amazing. I had wondered watching this how difficult it was to film in a cave because it seemed so believable, but they use a wonderful mix of techniques to sell this cave. Uh, I think it was 21 cave sets in total with two or three big rooms and several smaller setups for different shots. They had taken some molds from real cave walls and arranged them in ways where the audience might not realize these walls were being reused. They'd pull tricks like having a, a wet set and then come in at the opposite like end and, and then it was a sandy set. And I never noticed any cave reuse, honestly. But I'm also dumb. So, there's that. One thing that they do to really sell the cave, though, is, is quite insidious. And it's the way they position the camera. The camera seems to respect the physical space as if there were walls behind it, that it's in the cave with the characters. When they're in a... Ah, jeez. When they're in a big room, you can get the group shot, and you can go wide, and it can be slightly overhead, it can be big. But when they're in a slot right? The camera's right there in the slot with them, filming the characters head on. When they're down in a hole, you know, Alice in Chains, the camera looks at them from above as if it were looking down the hole. When they're crossing a bottomless abyss, the camera gazes up at them from, from the untold depths. This Nietzschean camera really gazing back at these people. And this really sells being in the cave, you know, for me. It, it sold me on it 100%, big time. Uh, I actually, fun fact, I tried watching this several months ago and I had to nope the fuck out the first time they go through one of those slots in the cave. That's how sold I was, but I, I powered through this time. I had the DVD, I was ready to go. They also do a fun thing with the infrared of the camcorder that Holly brings along and I feel like it's been done in some other movies. I think that... Wreck does this, and I believe there was a Silent Hill game that was called something like Shattered Memories, where you have this, and Alan Wake is, is kind of like this with the flashlight, and I think there might be an Amnesia or or one of these uh, Penumbra games that, that does it as well, but 
it's it's pretty freaky using that that IR mode to just make everything scary looking, but also to see what you can't, because otherwise it's just pitch black. Fear of the dark. In darkness, there is a huge potential for jump scares, and, and they do happen. Iron Maiden made a song called Fear of the Dark, and it fucking slaps. And that's not a coincidence. But anyway, the fear of the dark is reported uh, to be a human evolutionary fear from when humans were, were not at the top of the food chain. This is likely something I talked about in the Pitch Black episode, because it really it lives in the same space. There's There's darkness and... There's things in the darkness out there that can get you. And typically, they can see you just fine. How they team up and match up to the antagonist. The bond of, of friendship, the, the friendship of these women is like the hope or the weapon or good goodness. And the cave is really set up as being the antagonist that jump. It is, it is nature itself, and man cannot hope to stand against it, but perhaps women can badass its way through it. And, and that was definitely very possible that this would have been the case had it not been a boss fight. They, they, they definitely take an L early on with Holly being a hot, hot-headed, uh, pardon my French, fuckwit, le fuquit falling victim to the thing like paranoia john carpenter's a thing right and insanity and just busting her ass by just turning off her light and falling down a fucking hole and breaking her leg open which was really gross at that point she was she was done she was it was over and sarah spots a crawler in a really odd and frightening encounter but the worst part about it is that they are they're at a distinct disadvantage by the time they even spot the crawlers they're already fighting for their life and they get that one more thing there had been some sound cues earlier that were setting the stage and foreshadowing but they were ambiguous but once we see one we know i mean we knew but now we know and the cave has already been known to severely hamper their sight and their movement they're they're both dumb and blind in this cave and a hundred percent definitely slow and that builds the crawlers up so much more to make them so extremely threatening it's like running up against a shoggoth at at the mount at the at the mountains of madness right in in the book not the show and it's probably way less racist but with a more distinct human vibe to the existential horror Right, the, the horror here is not that we aren't alone in this universe, but that we aren't alone on this planet, right? And it is both more possible and scarier, somehow, probably because of it. And, and on top of that, Juno really shits the bed, right? Rebecca calls her out on the fact that this doesn't look anything like the Borum Caverns, I believe is what it was that she'd been researching. You know, because she's like the the responsible counterpart and they started a business together and all these things. And they had fought, she had filed the travel plan so that somebody could come fucking rescue them if they got stuck. And Juno said, fuck all that. And the, she took them to 
get stranded and die because she's extreme. And it's that same type of character flaw that has her sex up her friend's husband because she's she's just super fucking selfish. Even in the cave, Sarah kind of calls her out. Her Juno's justification is that she wanted to do this. To, she wanted this to be about the group and she wants it to be like how it used to be. And by that, she means extreme. And she wants to take undiscovered land and name it or claim it, which is, you know, a whole thing in and of itself. Her stated goal was to help Sarah heal, but Sarah, you know, the last one bridging the gap at this time, right? Just before Juno, Juno's going to take the last uh, position. Sarah asks her, is this about me or is it about you? And Juno doesn't have an answer and the silence speaks volumes. Their isolation also is a reason for fear. I'm, I'm a city boy myself, as, as swampy as I may be, and isolation legitimately strikes fear in my heart. I may have talked about this, but when I went to Alaska, there was a, there was a cab driver in Anchorage that told us that there was, there was a glacier that you could just visit just 40 minutes or so outside of town. By the way, there's only approximately two cell providers that work in Alaska, two cellular mobile phone providers. And I was fortunate enough that my work phone at the time was on one of them. So we, we loaded up the directions, my wife and I, and off we went. It took about two hours to get to the glacier, which, by the way, you need to, to brave a steep grade that a rental car probably would not accommodate. So we didn't even get end up driving close to it, but we took pictures kind of from the highway and from an observation point. But on that drive, we were faced with utterly desolate highway, no cell service whatsoever, and random rusted out cars and shacks on the side of the road, which really kind of read into the fear of, of the person who ultimately is truly never alone. And th that is being utterly alone and without aid should something happen. The rock slide signs on the corners carving up mountains was particularly threatening because I don't, I don't have mountains. And because on several of those corners, there were boulders much, much larger than the vehicle that we were in, which were pushed off to the side of the road as evidence of what bullshit mother nature may have provided you around the next blind corner. When nature and isolation conspire, it, it is truly a harrowing experience, at least for me, who is, I'm just, it's not my thing, but that shit is scary. So with all that stacked up against them, they run up against a predator who is faster, stronger, and better in that environment. The entire community of hissy, swole golem rejects that climb on ceilings like the goddamn exorcists, right? This isn't a, this isn't a prodigy album in that they're always outnumbered, never outgunned, or, or the Walter Mosley novel that I just became aware of and will probably read called Always Outnumbered, Always Outgunned. Actually, actually, yeah, it is. It's more like that. They're for sure outnumbered and outgunned in every way. Like Weezer's Buddy Holly, they can't run and they can't kick. Or can they? In classic plot armor, this apex predator is super dumb and their echolocation can't hear a human being 
being really quiet, being being really quiet, although I would suspect that breathing and heartbeats would be apparent in a cave-like situation for a creature who 100% successfully could navigate via echolocation alone. Additionally, the fire sources would have been changes of heat that would have been otherwise expected and also pretty obvious to some fucking roided out chud, right? I don't think it takes anything away from this movie, like, at all, because you for sure get an alien vibe from it. But when you're picking nits, right, in the cold light of day, these show up. So, just pointing those out. The metaphor. I'm not going to sit here and be a Star Wars asshole on every frame because I don't know shit about bouldering, climbing, spelunking, or really fucking anything extreme except skateboarding and BMX, but... But I think that there's more to this movie. I, I believe that there's more that, you know, dudes before toods, right? Neil Marshall's letting on. There's legitimately something going on in this movie that keeps it on the rails of being a visceral and intense experience, genuinely, with some payoff or meaning. My thesis. I actually have a thesis statement for this movie, which is somewhat rare. One, because again, I'm dumb. But two, because I don't think that many movies commit this hard. I firmly believe that, regardless of how much of a douche as Neil Marshall and the production folks may attempt to come off as being, there was a thesis in this movie, and it was built around womanhood and female friendship. If you think about it, like genuinely, how, how do you pitch this movie to get made? Do you say, hot girls stuck in cave? Or do you say trauma victim processes her feelings through the loss of female friendships by literally getting stuck in a vagina and all her friends die? And it's the metaphor they committed to, so I mean, it, it is possible. In, in the behind-the-scenes footage, the actors and the crew are definitely calling several cave sets vaginas, and a thousand percent. And there's even at least one that gets lubricated in slime, and the dude on screen saying that he's waiting for the slime to show up so that they can slime it up is... He knows what he's saying, right? So regardless of Neil Marshall saying, you can read whatever you want into it, an approximate quote, um, it's it's literally happening. It's actually happening. And Marshall deadass listed women as one of his greatest fears at the top of the making of featurette. And then he's douching it up in front of the the commentary track. So he's for sure pent up in all this repressed British fashion. and And this is some way of getting it out, I would assume. Again, this is my interpretation, but it's generally corroborated by anyone with eyes and ears. And really looking at it, this could be the processing of Sarah's trauma through her immediate friend group. Now, I know how big issues can ripple through friend groups, and I've, I've lost friends through things that I've gone through because it's just, you know, too much for everybody to kind of bear and I'm, I'm probably the asshole for that, but I, I think about it relatively regularly when I start to kind of reevaluate how my situation is regarding social relationships. It's complicated. I get it. This movie, it, it makes it fatally complicated. My whole thesis is that this is Sarah processing her trauma, the death of her husband and, and her daughter, right? And the, the deaths of the characters further in the movie are are really them just leaving the friend group, and this can be stressful in a group of people, but it's ultimately about Sarah figuring out her shit, you know, and she does. 
that she does. But one by one, through attrition, these women eventually all leave the friend group. Death breakdown. Let's do a death breakdown, which um, sounds way more metal than it is, but realistically, Scream Bloody Gore is the ultimate banger, and Symbolic is a masterpiece that leads to the final form of The Sound of Perseverance, which uh, death, they really came into their own, commercially and artistically, with The Sound of Perseverance, I would say. The whole album has a crisp, clean sound, and a new sheen of consummate professionalism that really gives the songs a big boost. Holly is the new girl in the group, and she just is an asshole and gets got because of it. I would say that she had better odds than some of surviving a crawler attack, but if she wasn't such a fucking idiot, she would have been okay. Beth initially gets got by Juno, as, as a legitimate accident. But, however, Juno just fucking leaves her there to die. She is not cool about it, really and genuinely. But it happened. And she's opportunistic and selfish, so her super special pendant goes into Beth's hand. Her pendant says, love every day. And that's what Sarah's husband would say all the time. Am I right? So this is going to be how Sarah puts two and two together. Uh, Sam gets got while gapping a bottomless abyss, and it's really scary because of her circumstance, and it also supersells the hopeless cave aesthetic, and uh, if I could do a, a vaporwave sound here, that would be perfect. Rebecca just gets got in a tunnel, just trying to survive. No real, no real stakes other than that, but she, she doesn't make it. You know, the level-headed one gets eaten by this fucking chud trauma. Just like everybody else. Beth again. Uh, Beth isn't dead, but she does pass the pendant onto Sarah. Sarah herself, uh, Mercy kills Beth by bashing her head in with a rock. Uh, she was, in Zack Snyderian terms, already dead. So it makes sense, but this is an evolution for Sarah and also an exit for Beth. In the metaphor, Beth probably drops dime on Juno, but somehow this gets her associated with the transgression. And and I really can't help but think that this is a British because you knew type of thing, but to me personally, I deal, I deal in Shakira terms in that whenever, wherever, that information is just straight helpful to me. So I wouldn't bash the messenger, so to speak. This does seem to be the case in this metaphor. That's how that would work. So Sarah clearly bashes her, you know, best friend's head in with a rock in a cave while everybody's fighting for their lives. Sarah ends up acing a crawler child and, and then has to fight off the mom. And it's definitely a fight. And, and in this, Sarah's becoming crazier at every beat and more like the crawlers, but she understood what she did. She understood that she killed a child and, and, in this fight, it's not only for her life, but I think that she put herself in the place of someone who could fight for for their child's life. And it's a big mood. And what wouldn't you do to fight for your child? Honestly, what wouldn't you do, right? And that's really the question, and the answer is that if Sarah had the choice, she'd fight and win her child back. But, but she doesn't, you know. 
no stupid fucking Richard Donner Superman is going to spin the world backwards and grant your child life again by rewinding time. All the meanwhile, Juno is nearly dying, but still kicking ass and taking names. When I mentioned the borderline overly sexualized but still aspirational women, I, I really thought of this. Juno Juno is the peak of all the things. She has defined triceps, and, and she's a knockout literally and figuratively fighting off the chuds, right? She meets up with Sarah finally, and they rock a big fight scene with several crawlers uh, with, you know, really optimistic editing. Fair. But uh, the end result is that Sarah ends up acing her with a pick to the leg. You know, she drops the dime with the pendants she got from Beth, uh, who took her from Juno, right? Which says, love every day. Juno, Juno at that moment knows that Sarah knows. And it's like confirmation for Sarah. It's what she thought. So, yeah, that, that day is not a love every day. It's a fucking fight or die day. And I don't know if that means something, but it certainly is something. So Sarah just shatters Juno's leg and runs off, leaving her as a bonus for the boosted crawlers that that keep them, you know, that, that keep coming after them to keep them crawlers out. So de depending on where you saw the movie, there's a slightly different ending. But the broad strokes are that Sarah definitely crazier than before, but definitely more independent and on her own, emerges viciously from the vagina cave like a newborn. Yes, yes, the cave has been a vagina the whole time, and Sarah emerging from the cave is quite nearly the scene in Ace Ventura when nature calls where the titular character ejects himself from the either anus or vagina of a robotic rhinoceros. It's, it's definitely a thing, trust me. She screams out loud, uh, which from, from my recollection, which, which may be flawed as she emerges, which is, is definitely a, a primal scream or primal therapy thing. And, uh, that's definitely interesting in and of itself, but in college terms, it's going to extreme emotional levels to help process trauma and subsequently kind of be reborn. So QED, right? It's a, uh, it's a catharsis of, of, of all her trauma. She comes out. She comes out of the other, other end of it. She comes out of the other end, so to speak. But I mean, that's it, really. It's not, I mean, not really. There's a, there's a whole, the orchestration of the, the scores, is this cacophony of sound to imply chaos and anger, that worked really well. The movie was really the product of one vision, and that definitely worked out. Yes, yes, there are pointless jump scares, but they don't really impede this uh, force majeure of artistic performance couched in metaphor and wrapped in a great production. The crawlers are legitimately gross. The women in the picture are legitimately badass. The ending, UK versus US, is relatively trivial, those differences, and ultimately it really just builds into making the sequel which from friends in passing like i didn't interrogate anyone it's just it's come up in conversation in the past the sequel is not good is my understanding but more hey more than a couple people got jobs so making a, a not great movie definitely okay in my book
you know, and, and the ending doesn't really have any huge weight in terms of the metaphor or anything. You know, it's just uh, perhaps the John and Susie Q public version of, of what the ending of the movie should be. Right? I get it. She's like, oh, I killed Juno or whatever. Yeah, I get it. But also, I get it. So, that's it. That's the movie. That's the descent. We went down. We, we, we were down for the descent and we, we came back up. So, uh, as always, you can find me on Twitter at CoolMarkD, Cool with a C and Mark with a K. You know, and that's the thing. So, like, uh, like and subscribe and rate the podcast. Hit that bell for more, I don't know, notification. What, that's what you say, right? Well, I'm, I'm saying it. Voice talents by Mr. McIntosh. Uh, I think this voice was Serena or Moira. No, this voice was Moira. It was randomly selected, but it worked out. Because she's Irish. Um, as always, you know, wear a mask. Stay safe, please. Uh, Black Lives Matter. I'll, I'll see you next time, whenever I get a chance. Until then, be, be, be wonderful. I love you all.